Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour. And we are out of CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and on many much-appreciated radio syndicates, uh, community radio stations around the country, and online, on podcasts, websites, whatever those are. I'm David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour, and we are your two hosts today. Yeah, Stefan, Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter is not here today, but he will be interviewing soon enough on this very show. Rebecca Babcock, who is the lead of a series of climate education workshops. They are called Talk Climate to Me, and it is a women and women identifying focused climate education workshop series. So they're just going to be talking about what she's doing there, how that's going to work, the content, etc. I'm sure it's going to be great because nobody wants to be caught off guard by a crisis. Speaking of which, I will just say briefly, we're now in a position with this pandemic and the Omicron variant specifically, where I don't know if this is just now, it's happening now, if it's always been the case, but it's salient now that uh, it's in large pharmaceutical companies' best interests, like Pfizer, and any company that is withholding its vaccine information from public use that, that's trying to hold it in private hands and, and profit off it to indefinitely prolong the pandemic. Because if you solve the pandemic, we're not going to have more and more of these variants. But the more variants that come out, the more profitable these companies become because they can keep selling booster shots and different kinds of ways to deal with the new variants if they're allowed to continue to withhold this uh, information, which is publicly funded to begin with. We need to take these vaccines out of private hands and put them into public hands so that they become, they're already free, but so that these companies aren't making oodles of money off of them. And we need to distribute them equitably. We're going to do environmental news. And then Lauren's going to help us dissect a couple, a few flashy climate jargon words that policymakers throw around, but are very unclear as to their meaning so, beginning with the news, Canada's parliamentary budget officer recently put out a report saying that the federal government is $700 million short over the next five years on drinking water and sanitation funding for First Nations. The report said that we have put enough money up to build water and wastewater systems over the next five years, but we need to commit another $138 million annually to actually operate the systems. The report came just a few days after Ottawa again pledged reconciliation in their obligatory throne speech, in which they promised once again to end long-term drinking water advisories on Indigenous reserves. They had previously pledged to fix the drinking water on reserves by March 2021, and now they are, of course, $700 million short over the next five years to maintain the water and wastewater systems that they plan to build. The Wallastogwe Nation in New Brunswick recently added to its lawsuit against the provincial government. The nation has now specifically named several corporations that have operated on its land without consent. APTN quotes Chief Patricia Bernard as saying, quote, These private companies are beneficiaries of the land, water, and resources that were illegally taken from us. This is our traditional unceded and unsurrendered land, and we are owed compensation for the last 200 years of land and resource theft. According to the lawsuit, over 60% of the Wollasogwe Nation's land is currently taken up by corporations and governments. 
The nation's news release states that the Wallastogwe Nation has never intended to evict regular New Brunswickers from their homes or farms. It argues that the provincial government has failed to recognize the peace and friendship treaties that acknowledge that New Brunswick sits on unceded and unsurrendered territory, that the corporations named never paid fair value for the land, and the provincial government did not seek fair market value from the forestry country companies that are getting rich off of a booming world market. Chief Ross Purley states in the release, quote, It has never been in the public interest to give away land for free to large corporations. Here in Ontario, Global News is reporting that the Ford government would not hand over information about carcinogenic benzene pollution to the Amgenong First Nation until a Freedom of, of Information request was filed. Also in Ontario, the Nuskantaga First Nation is taking the province to court over Ontario's inability to conduct a proper consultation regarding the Ring of Fire mineral mines. The nation has stated, quote, The pandemic, coupled with Nuskantaga's ongoing water crisis, provided a perfect foil for a bulldozer-style consultation. Ontario's oppressive timelines for consultation made it impossible for Nuskantaga to bring its community together in line with Anishinaabe and OG Cree protocols in order to gather feedback and prepare a meaningful submission. They also stated, quote, Ontario also made use of the oldest trick in the book, project splitting, with a side of divide and conquer. What began as a single transportation corridor to serve a mining project overseen by a single project proponent was split off into multiple discrete projects with various First Nation proponents. Over in B.C., it has recently come to light that the NDP government personally authorized the deployment of the Mounties that recently invaded Wet'suwet'en land on behalf of Coastal GasLink. B.C. officials have also recently stated that the Coastal GasLink uh, Gas is still failing to fix multiple environmental violations, even as the government forces Wet'suwet'en people off their land to make way for the Coastal GasLink pipeline. The Gidimdan Access Point has vowed to continue fighting the pipeline, and solidarity protests are still happening. The NHL, meanwhile, is looking to employ new synthetic refrigerants that are apparently thousands of times worse for the atmosphere than CO2. The chemicals are being endorsed because they at least may not deplete the ozone like the refrigerants that were previously used by the NHL, and are allegedly better for the climate than what's currently being used. Inside Climate News reports that the NHL is being paid millions of dollars to call these refrigerants sustainable. Finally, Ecuador's highest court has affirmed that nature itself has constitutional rights. Katie Serma writes for ICN, quote, The decision means that Ecuador's government will have to revoke mining permits granted to Enami, Ecuador's state mining company, and its Canadian partner, Cornerstone Capital Resources, for exploratory operations within the Los Cedros protected area in Ecuador's northwest region. The decision reads in part, quote, The risk in this case is not necessarily related to human beings, but to the extinction of species, the destruction of ecosystems, or the permanent alteration of natural cycles. Do you have anything to say on the news? What, we're like 109 days out from when Trudeau said he was going to have clean drinking water in all Indigenous communities, or, or maybe he might have specifically said First Nations communities, which would exclude Inuit and Métis peoples. But like, and you couldn't do that one thing 
that one freaking thing you couldn't handle. And it's like the, the first smallest step towards reconciliation is making sure that people actually have clean drinking water and are able to sustain themselves in like a very, I don't know, base level way. And he couldn't do that. It's just, it's so disappointing. Isn't even the right word. Infuriating isn't the right word. It's just, it's so upsetting. We're a hundred days out from that date. And we know, we know we're going to miss it. What did they say? You said there's a plan over the next five years to maintain and develop those, those wastewater systems. And we're still $700 million short. So zero faith in this, in this government. It's so upsetting. This government inherited a like thickly carapaced colonial blindness to what it's actually done here and what its real legacy is. And then they came at it with this happy little smile, wishy-washy thing that just so transparently, even though so many people voted for them, just so transparently just painted over everything with this uh, weird fake happiness and still nothing is really being achieved. For people who know me personally, they know I'm obsessed with with people in multi-level marketing schemes and like pyramid schemes and a term that gets you used a lot in that space to critique the space is this concept of like toxic positivity and I feel like Trudeau especially yeah. with that first election and that first campaign there was so much toxic positivity just as a way to like if you like love bomb the nation enough into voting for you most people won't be able to see past like that po- like that faux positivity and the lies in order to like actually dig down into the dirt and see that like none of these pledges have been met none of these promises have been met and like we are still as deeply entrenched in colonialism as we were five years ago. Yeah, and that's that's the essence of the we charity. If you see those videos, it's so purely toxic positivity. It's just happy people jumping up and down for the glory of a of a non-existent future that they're not even attempting to build properly. I think we've just realized that uh, Canada itself is just pure MLM energy, top to bottom. Absolutely. It's one big Instagram ad. It works so perfectly with those images, especially the new ones that came out of Trudeau, sticking out his tongue and smiling in blackface with like this weird exotic headdress thing on. It's like, dang. And on that note, we'll go to break (laughs) and come back and uh, debunk some jargon for you. Yeah, we're going to take a music break now and come back and do some environmental jargon. back with the green majority canada's longest running environmental news hour and lauren was at cop 26 recently and i'm sure that that is one of the if not the jargon capitals of the environmental scene and uh there are a few words that we're looking at can i start with unabated just because i have thing prepared for it so a couple weeks ago uh i referenced a climate analytics report uh, that was calling natural gas the new coal and I noticed that they were they used this word unabated in it, which I didn't understand, and we didn't have time to go into at the point at the at the time. 
But I'll just mention briefly that the, some of the points made in, in, the, in the report from climate analytics were that between 2010 and 2019, natural gas made up 42% of all CO2 emissions increases from fossil fuels, that over the same time frame, natural gas accounted for 60% of all methane emissions from the production of fossil fuels, and under current policies, natural gas is expected to be responsible for 70% of the projected increase in CO2 emissions from fossil fuels up to 2030. So the report was showing that natural gas is not going to help us solve the climate crisis. Now, another point the report made was, quote, analysis of 1.5 degrees Celsius compatible scenarios from the IPCC special report shows unabated use of natural gas in primary energy supply globally should already have peaked and be declining globally, and that it needs to drop by more than 30% below 2020 levels by 2030 and 65% below 2020 levels by 2040. So the report is saying that to keep global heating below 1.5 degrees Celsius, natural gas use needs to steeply decline. But the report doesn't just say that natural gas use needs to decline steeply, period. It says that unabated use of natural gas in primary energy supply globally needs to decline steeply. And the use of unabated here and the use of these other this, these, these additional terms, natural gas in primary energy supply globally, I'm not necessarily saying is nefarious, but it's just very difficult to understand. It's, it's not language that makes sense in a general uh, level, even for people who, who are steeped in it. But Lauren was saying also that she had come across this use of unabated uh, in reference to coal a lot in COP in her experience at COP, and this was a big issue. So it's interesting to me that that unabated comes on is being used by both sides, both people who are against fossil fuels and pro fossil fuels. Uh, and so I was wondering if Lauren could say something about the usage of the word unabated, and maybe about the primary energy supply globally thing. Or I think that's just like. It's just that there's too much information being packed in there to a few, like four words, but okay, but unabated. Yeah, yeah. So unabated is one of these, like, it's like a qualifier is how I keep thinking about it that keep being used more and more lately. Um, and and like you said, I, I first started to hear it being used um, recently within sort of the COP context because there's this group called the Powering Past Coal Alliance that was founded by a number of people, among them being Catherine McKenna, and now uh, Stephen Gibo as new Minister of Environment and Climate Change Canada is, is, is on the Powering Past Coal Alliance team. And like I said, I've, I heard abated being used by, by that group and by organization or and by countries, parties rather, signing on to the Powering Past Coal Alliance because they define themselves as a coalition of national and subnational governments businesses and organizations working to advance the transition from unabated coal power generation to clean energy. So that's where I first heard the term unabated. And when I was like sort of doing some research to figure out, cause like, I think I know intuitively what unabated means, but like, just to confirm, I pulled up an OECD definition. And I mean, the OECD itself is the organization for economic cooperation and development. It's like a multilateral group of rich countries basically, but their definition of abation or abatement rather, abation isn't a word. Um, pollution abatement refers to technology applied or measures taken to reduce pollution and slash or its impacts on the environment. Um, most commonly used technologies are scrubbers, noise mufflers, filters, incinerators, waste, water treatment facilities, or composting facilities. So basically within the context of coal or in natural gas, abatement 
is uh, like carbon capture and storage, basically. So unabated coal or unabated natural gas is that natural gas or that coal, which hasn't been, um, which hasn't had the emissions sequestered via carbon capture and storage. So again, it, it's a it's a qualifying term to sort of like segment the industry and segment the emissions into like these are emissions that we're okay with because they're 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 emissions that will be abated, and these are emissions that we're not okay with because they're not going to be abated. How is it that some emissions can be sequestered but others can't? Well, and like that's the thing. It's like this idea that coal emissions can be abated or can be sequestered on a large scale is, from my understanding kind of a falsehood to begin with, because at this point, carbon capture, storage and utilization isn't, hasn't been, and cannot be deployed at a scale big enough to like meaningfully sequester any degree of carbon emissions. When I hear something like, oh, we're transitioning away from unabated coal power generation. It's like, oh, so that should mean all coal power generation because like none of it can be meaningfully abated. None of it can be meaningfully sequestered. That of course, isn't actually what's happening here. What I believe is happening here is you're getting coal companies and the industry at large saying, no, 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 don't worry about it. That's a plant that we're going to be able to put scrubbers on that we're going to be able to sequester the carbon from. So it can stay. It might not be abated now, but it will be down the road. So, so don't even worry about that one. That's sort of how I imagine this conversation is happening in reality. So the word unabated, a subtly insidious term, because it does apply to reality in one sense, in that like, potentially, yes, you could sequester some of this, and therefore it would be, it's potentially abated in the future. But at the same time, it's no, it's not clear how much could ever be sequestered or or abated. And so it allows this wide ranging wiggle room, where once you use the term unabated, it, it becomes totally unclear what emissions are being spoken of. Yeah, that's exactly it. it. It just, I think it's one of those terms that like, like net zero kind of just allows for a longer runway for these industries to continue to operate. At least that's my interpretation of it. So like another term that we were going to look at similar to unabated, like the thing I hear when I hear unabated coal is the same thing I hear when I hear inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. And it's this idea that some fossil fuel subsidies are good because they're efficient and some are bad because they're inefficient and we're going to phase out the inefficient ones. And it's totally confusing because the definition of inefficient is like largely subjective. And when I have tried to when, when good people have tried to research it and see what like the Canadian government's definition of inefficient is, it's like, it's clear as mud. It's totally bizarre. It's words like, I found definitions that say things like, oh, an inefficient subsidy is a subsidy that encourages wastefulness or encourages or, or like distorts the markets or impedes investment in clean energy sources. And it's like, that's all fossil fuel subsidies. So how you can possibly define any subsidy as being efficient, I have no idea inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. You're suggesting that potentially slightly unlike unabated, it actually has no application to reality. Because I'm not understanding any application that inefficient could have, efficient or inefficient in this, in this regard. I don't understand a world in which any fossil fuel subsidy is defined as efficient because all of them are theoretically going towards an industry that needs to be sunset that is being sunset. So like any money being any money going into the fossil fuel industry is, is, is wasted. 
um, would distort a market, would impede investment in clean energy sources, and would undermine efforts to deal with climate change. Maybe if you're giving money to a fossil fuel company to decrease the energy, the carbon intensity of their product as it stands, while not producing more, is that increasing the efficiency of the product? Well, and and I think and I think that's how it's getting in. I think that's how some of these subsidies are continuing to um, to flow is because it's the idea that yeah, oh, we're we're giving money to this given company in order to, like you said, reduce the intensity of their emissions. But we we see and we know time and time again that like for, for instance, when subsidies went to fossil fuel companies during the pandemic in order to help prop up their work, or um, for instance, when they were going towards them for um, for dealing with orphan wells what we saw happen was that there wasn't an increase in like cleaning up of or of orphan wells it was the same number of orphan wells that were cleaned up as were always going to be cleaned up it was just using government dollars to do it instead of private industry dollars to do it and there was recent there was recently something that came out about the fossil fuel companies that received money like pandemic relief money in canada in order to keep jobs and also decrease their emissions or something were actually used to increase their emissions. And so there's a huge uh, disconnect between what's officially stated as the as the funding reason and what it actually ends up being used for once it ends up in the private hands. Um, and so the third, the third term, what was the third term you mentioned? The third term was one that we heard recently um, called blended finance. And this blended is one finance, that, that's that right. like was actually like totally new to me, but climate finance is increasingly becoming part of like climate finance has of course been part of the, the sort of like the climate conversation for years and years and years, but it's only something that's just now sort of starting to like break into like mainstream general layperson discourse because we're finally starting to see money put towards it and we're also starting to see that like these campaigns that have been working on climate finance for a really long time like it's it's just becoming more of an everyday conversation so blended finance is a term that's been thrown around and blended finance means again reading from a definition from the world economic forum which i mean like we don't love but at least like we're if we're using the definition that that they're using as well blended finance means the use of public and philanthropic finance to mobilize private capital capital flows. So basically what it means is that in addition to using private or corporate dollars, you're using philanthropic dollars as well um, in order to like fund these efforts, which is an important conversation to have, um, especially as we as we deal with issues around like, for instance, going back to the orphan well cleanup thing, it's like, does that need to be subsidized by the government or does that need to be dealt with by private industry because it's industry's mess? I don't know, that kind of thing. But the the bigger question around climate finance for me is is more so around equity and uh, dealing with specifically what is what is referred to as like the quality of the finance or the form it takes, because so much of the money that has been pledged from rich countries countries to more developing countries is in the form of a, of a loan instead of a grant. So it's the idea that like, if, if David was Bangladesh and Lauren is Canada and Canada is giving money to Bangladesh, I'm giving it to you. If I give it to you in the form of a loan, then you have to pay that back to me and you have to pay that back to me plus interest, as opposed to if I, if I give it to you as a grant, you don't have to pay it back, which I think is what we all know is incredibly important, not least of which, because it a loan in addition to further indebting that country and like <laughs> further worsening their financial situation it, it it also means that wealthy nations aren't actually being forced to confront the reality of the historical responsibilities they have for climate change 
because eventually they'll be getting that money back anyway. So it's not actually any skin off their back. So this blended finance approach doesn't appear to really be working, actually, at least according to this uh, Energy Mix article from a month ago, BlackRock is trying to get the wealthy nations to give the $100 billion a year instead of loaning it to encourage more private finance to invest in clean energy and industry. And so BlackRock wants, wants governments to give the money as grants in order to coax investors, not rich private companies, to just give money, but to invest in poorer nations, quote-unquote poorer nations' uh, industries, emerging green industries. Which essentially just, we know, continues to perpetuate and hold up those harmful colonial capitalist structures that have gotten us into this mess in the first place. So yeah, in adaptation measures, if people are receiving money in order to adapt to climate change, there's no guarantee if that money's being being spent in a way that's actually helping people, there's absolutely no guarantee that it's going to generate future profits for investors. If people are actually being helped, it has to be totally divorced from the idea that you're going to profit off helping these people. And so I guess that's why the idea of blended finance makes people cringe a bit, because it implies uh, a scenario that isn't necessarily based in reality whatsoever of rich people continuing to make money off of the cl climate change, et cetera. Well, yeah. And, and it also just like maybe contributes to this idea that like blended finance means the use of like philanthropic finance, which is such a great thing. And it's all these good rich people giving their money away. And it's like, that's not what happens. Rich people don't just give their money away. <laughs> that's never how this works. But anyway. What's your dog's name? Oh, Nora. And I'm so sorry to listen. Nora. I heard Nora snoring next to me the whole time. She's she's like a 10-year-old French bulldog. She is an elderly woman. Nora the French bulldog. It's not a pug. It's a French. Thank you. Exactly. We'll have to get a photo of her up on our Instagram at some point. Yes. So she can be an honorary. She should be the first photo. She should be the first interviewed member of first the First team photo. Yeah. <laughs> she first got interested in the environment when she was born and... and uh, crawled out of the uh, womb sniffing the the pure grass of the earth do you know something messed up about how french bulldogs are born um oh. they cannot be born naturally they can only be born via cesarean because the puppy's heads and their big shoulders are bigger than their than than the mother dog's tiny tiny pelvis so if you own a french bulldog it was born via cesarean almost definitely that is so awful it's so awful. The, the way we've uh, generationally just manipulated the genetic makeup of these dogs so that they can barely even be born into this world. Incredible. A friend's dog slept over a couple months ago and I like woke it up multiple times in the night because I wasn't used to a dog sleeping silently next to me <laughs> because that dog had like a normal shaped face and snout. I'm, I've only ever known dog with mashed up face. Necessary. They're, they're very cute. Yes. You freakish. Anyway, <laughs> think that's us for today. That is us. And now we're going to go to Stefan's interview with Rebecca Babcock, who is leading a series of climate workshops called Talk Climate to Me. So enjoy this interview. And on that note, we're going to go to some music. Peace.
and welcome back to the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which you can found anywhere podcasts can be found, and also on our website, which is greenmajority.ca. However you're listening to us, we greatly appreciate it, and we are going to show that appreciation by giving you a fantastic interview with Rebecca Babcock, the Talk Climate to Me lead. Thank you so much for being here, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. And so this is a new project. And so perhaps not a ton of folks will have heard about it. So can you just give us a brief overview of what Talk Climate to Me is and what you aim to do with it? Yes. So Talk Climate to Me is a fun, free, unscary climate change education experience designed for women identifying people around the ages of 20 to 60 although we've had younger and older individuals join us, and it's for people in Canada, although we also have had people from across the world join us as well. Uh, We've created four one-hour episodes where we dive into climate change, talking climate, and taking climate action. Each episode is broken into about 45 minutes of content, and then 10 to 15 minutes of breakout group sessions where small groups can talk. So to give you a little breakdown of our episodes, in episode one, we start off with the very basics of climate change with the help of Dr. Kimberly Nicholas, who explains it's warming, it's us, it's bad, we're sure, but we can fix it. We then highlight some amazing local women climate leaders who are taking action to show that women, our participants, and every individual can help create a climate safe future. In episode two, it's all about empathy, and it does get a little bit heavy. Dr. Laura Tozer helps us see that if we don't act on climate change, things are only going to get worse. And we hear stories from local climate leaders about how they and the vulnerable and marginalized communities they work with are already being hit the hardest and will continue to suffer the unequal and deeply unfair impacts of climate change. We then focus on individual action. We look at carbon footprints and the impactful actions our participants can take on a household level. In episode three, it's all about Canada and systemic change. We look at where Canada's emissions come from and how exactly Canada compares to the rest of the world on climate action. Uh, Fun fact, it's not that great. Caroline Lee highlights what needs to change in Canada, and we take a look at the barriers that are preventing us from changing quickly. We then focus on systemic action and how individuals can push for systems-level change by creating ripples and then waves through talking climate and taking climate action. Finally, episode four is all about how we as a world, as a country, a community, and as individuals, how we can flourish through climate action. We look at the co-benefits of climate action through the framework of the sustainable development goals, which Alicia Richens sets up for us. And then we send our participants off with a graduation ceremony. Hopefully they'll never forget. Our episodes are highly participatory. We have live polls and really get an engaging live chat going. And we also provide our participants with resources, videos, exercises, events they can go to and organizations that they can be a part of so our participants can continue to learn about and engage with climate action. And our goal is simple. We want to bring climate literacy to Canadian women in an engaging way. And we want to motivate and empower women to participate in talking climate and taking climate action. And we've already seen that happening. So that's uh, really exciting. 
That's awesome. And it's great that you've had a couple of these, you know, already working through the system to get a sense of how it's going. And we'll get to that in, in a second. But first, this is actually the first piece of climate education targeted specifically at women and women and folks that have come across. And so I'm curious why you thought that was so important and what inspired you to make it this way? Yes, there are so many reasons. So we know that women are more concerned yet less confident in their climate knowledge. In fact, in Canada, women and girls are 12% more likely to rate climate change as an emergency. But women are also more likely to say, for instance, in one poll, they were twice more likely to say that they didn't know whether they supported Canada's carbon tax policy because they didn't really know what it was. We also know, so an added layer is that we also know that anyone over 30 likely didn't have meaningful climate education. And our friends at Clean Prosperity did some research and found barely any mention of climate across female-focused publications. Then there's the layer that women are uh, disproportionately experienced the impacts of climate change from an increased risk of domestic violence after extreme weather events to 80% of those who are displaced because of climate change are women. So those are all the negative layers, let's say, but we also know that women have superpowers. They control most household spending, which is where big climate decisions are made, like whether you get an energy efficient appliance. Women are also really good at turning climate knowledge into action. Finally, women can get through to the men in their lives to get them to change their attitudes and behaviors. All of these layers resulted in Sarah Lazarovich to say, we need to get women this information. We need to give women the information so they are empowered to take action. Sarah realized women are key in reaching a climate safe future. So she created the idea of Talk Climate to Me and then graciously provided Project Neutral the opportunity to make this course come to life. And in fact, Sarah recently wrote an, an opinion piece for CBC called, if you really want to affect climate change, talk to women. So this piece dives into all the various factors I just mentioned about why women are so important in the climate movement. And basically it's the foundation of why we created Talk Climate to Me. Cool. And so you've now run, as you mentioned, a few of these sessions already. And I'm curious, during those sessions or from those sessions, is there anything that's standing out from your experience? Oh my goodness. So the thing that stands out for me is that our participants are so passionate in actually taking climate action. We have individuals who have voiced their willingness to switch careers so that they are working in climate change. We had a participant, Mary, who at 82 years old got rid of her car because it contributed to climate change. See, she's also engaging with university students as well as her snowbird friends and talking to them about climate. Another participant attended her first climate march after attending Talk Climate to Me. People are writing to their MPs, signing petitions and talking climate on social media. And there's also this sense of community that's growing. People are sharing phone numbers or emails. They're setting up WhatsApp groups and are staying connected. And I think that's super important in continuing the momentum and staying inspired to take climate action. Yeah, for sure. I think that finding community is something that, that comes up again and again when you talk to people about how they manage to stay consistently engaged in something that is frankly terrifying, which segues a little bit to the next question. Because off the top, what do you describe this? You described it as fun and unscary, which... <laughs> 
for anyone who listens to this show or who has engaged with climate in the last 10 years can understand how difficult a task that might be given the reality of the world. And so how do you go about that? The first thing we do is that we make it unscary in the sense that we make our course accessible. You don't need to know a single thing about climate change, and we definitely won't judge you based on your knowledge. We create a warm and welcoming environment for women identifying people of all ages. And I think that's the first step in making it unscary. We also happen to just add the right amount of corny jokes and theatrics to get our participants laughing and having fun. And don't get me wrong, we get into the scary facts of climate change and what's at stake. As I mentioned, episode two definitely gets heavy, but throughout our course, we focus on inspirational leaders, hopeful stories, and concrete climate actions. Climate change is scary when people feel like there's no hope or that there's nothing we as individuals can do, that it's up to the quote unquote them. But knowledge, hope, ways to act, and there's a little spoiler, some really cute kittens can make it all unscary. And we emphasize that there is hope and every person has a role to play. And we've actually received feedback from participants saying how much they love the hopeful tone of our course. I think there's a lot of doom and gloom around climate change and rightly so, you know, a lot is at stake. But I know personally that if I focus on the doom and gloom, I feel helpless. And that's not a great feeling to have. Our goal when we made this course was to do the exact opposite, to give people hope and so that they felt empowered that they could take action, and so that we can have that climate-safe future. That's awesome. And you mentioned there about your own personal feelings about how you can feel stuck in anxiety, which I think a lot of people can relate to. And a question I've started asking really every guest that comes on the show is about climate anxiety and how you personally manage it. There are all these people out there in the world who might be listening to the show, see young people who are experiencing it. And so I'm just trying to give them more and more ways that they might battle it. So how do you personally manage your climate anxiety? Yes. So this is a big question and I have lots of ways that I deal with my climate anxiety. The first thing is that within the past year, I actually transitioned to the environmental sector and made the climate crisis my full-time job. That move actually really helped my climate anxiety because I felt like I was making a bigger systems level impact. But beyond making a giant career change, I do a few other things to manage my my climate anxiety. I continue to build my connections with communities of people that care about climate. I now have those relationships in my work. I have them in my volunteer groups that I've joined within the past couple of years. And I'm starting to find those connections with friends who I didn't realize cared about climate. And the more I talk about climate change, and highlight my climate actions, the bigger this community gets. And with this community, I feel inspired, motivated, and I know that I'm not alone, which uh, I think is really helpful. Another thing I do is I focus on big impact actions. So I used to focus on really small things that I could do, like trying to repurpose all the waste that came into my house or only ordering coffee if I brought my reusable mug. I was spending so much energy on these small items and I'm starting to feel burnt out. And I also felt like I wasn't really making a big difference. So 
I took a step back and I thought, where can I make the biggest impact? So I focused on reducing my meat intake, not using my car whenever possible, signing petitions and voting with the climate in mind. And that took less energy. I felt like I was doing more good and I wasn't burning out, which felt amazing and also helped my climate anxiety in that way. Finally, and this is a hard one, I think, for anyone who's like, climate change, we need to act now. But I give myself a break. Like a lot of people who think the climate crisis, like we have to act now. I work on climate change as my job. And actually this year I have three jobs related to climate. I do some volunteer work for climate organizations. I take climate change courses. I read climate change books. I listen to climate change podcasts. It's my life. And I'm perfectly happy with climate being my life's work. I, and I do get a lot of joy. Maybe joy is not the right word, but I'm very content with the work that I'm doing. I feel it's very meaningful for me, but there are days and sometimes those days turn into weeks where I am tired and my climate anxiety is high. And I feel like we need to take care of ourselves if we're going to take climate action over the long term. So I take a breather. I avoid the news media headlines because they certainly don't help. I put on a face mask and watch very bad holiday movies. And then I'll go for a walk in nature and reconnect with why I'm taking climate action. One of my favorite things to do actually, and I was able to do this through one of my jobs with writing a newsletter is that I got to write about issues and put this like hopeful twist to most of these, like the COP26. I know a lot of people were feeling a lot of despair and anxiety around it. I got to write about, hey, like, let's think about the positives that came out from it. The writing really helps me a lot. And basically through all these, like giving myself a break and writing to process a lot of my emotion, I'm able to replenish my mental capacity so that I'm ready to approach my climate work with a renewed energy. Awesome. Yeah, I think that I'm very interested in that piece about taking breaks because I think there's a tension between the need for fast action on climate change and the need for climate activists not to burn out. But also the thing that I can't entirely untangle in myself is the need for fast action inherently coming from the same system that has got us into this, the problem in the first place. That like the the need for fast, faster and faster and faster and faster, which is largely what our systems have created, you know, monocultures, you get more out of less time. Almost everything about hyper-specialization, same thing, right? How can we do things faster and cheaper, et cetera? That's internalized so deeply in my brain, in my body, that like I have still a, a self-worth connection to how much I can get done. And yet that is, I think, the actual exact toxic trait that is actually creating the issue, right? There's something that has to break down there between my self-worth being connected to how much I can put towards this cause and the reality that connection of self-worth to productivity is actually maybe the exact problem that has got us into this mess in the first place. Yes. I mean, you are speaking my language. I'm trying to break down the need to be productive all the time. And so this whole taking a break thing is new for me. And sometimes I just sit there being like, 
I feel very uncomfortable right now because I should be doing something. And it's that I should be, that is the issue, right? And I think you're really, you're right in the sense that it's this system that's told us that we need to be productive. We need to put out a lot of stuff in the shortest period of time that has created this issue. And I wonder if we all just took a step back, maybe through in a four day week, like systematically, what would we do with that extra day? Maybe we would all just go out and enjoy nature or do something good for the environment. Or maybe just like when you have time and space for yourself, I think that's when the best work comes out. And I think that's where we're going to see the best results in creating a better future for us all. Uh, yeah, I obviously very much agree. I could talk about this particular untangling for years, probably, and I probably will. Um, but given that we don't exactly have years, let's bring this conversation back to Talk Climate to Me. And as we mentioned before, you have done some already. So what have the responses been and any particular feelings of people that, that stand out to you? Yes. So honestly, I've been so overwhelmed with the amount of positive feedback we've gotten for Talk Climate to me. It's been absolutely amazing. Every episode, we have people coming in and giving their thanks to us. And within the live chat, most notably, we've had participants continue to say how much they love Talk Climate to me's graphics, which are all from Sarah, who I mentioned earlier. Participants love Katie Harper as the course facilitator. I think she has such an amazing energy. Participants also love the videos we've created for the course, even though sometimes they cry because of them. And in terms of like official testimonials, in our first cohort, one person said, the workshop was amazing, so well-structured and designed. Another person said, this is one of the best courses that they've ever been to. One other participant, said the way this program approaches individual accountability for climate action and the key role of starting the conversation has really hit home with me. You've all done a great job in making the content relevant to climate rookies and experts alike and keeping us, the participants, entertained along the way. And a final comment I'll share is from a participant in October who then became a team lead in November and will actually be a team lead again in 2022. So first of all, the fact that this participant loves Talk Climate to me so much that she's completing it three times is just absolutely wild. And so her comment is this, I enjoyed the October Talk Climate to me course so much that I decided to sign up to be a team lead in November. The positive, supportive environment of like-minded individuals who wanted to do something about climate change was very inspiring. And it felt good to be part of the larger movement. By the end of the four weeks, when she was a team lead, her group had formed a chat to stay connected about climate change issues beyond the course. We each committed to continue taking actions in our own ways and even saw these actions taking place during the course. One of our group members started a conversation with her condo board about adding an EV charging station to the parking facilities while another took the climate change conversation to her work in public health. It's so inspiring to think of all these smaller parts adding up to a larger whole, with the end goal to provide a climate-safe future for all. And when I read comments like this, I just feel like we're really succeeding with what our aim is for the course. Awesome. And so there are folks out there who have probably listened to this and 
most of them will be in Canada, and they might be interested in joining. So how can folks join the course in 2022? So lucky for uh, those people, we're running actually four more cohorts, one in January, February, March, and April. Currently, the January dates are um, all set up and registration is live. All you have to do is go to www.talkclimate2me.ca and click the Take the Course button at the top right-hand corner uh, to register. You can register as an individual, or you can also do this as a group. So I might have mentioned team leads, but basically you can register as a team lead, which means you invite a handful of your friends, colleagues, members of your book club to take the course with you. And I just want to mention, if you can't attend all the episodes, not to worry. We make a recorded version available to participants for the duration of the course. Also, if you can't attend the January session, we recommend you sign up for the Talk Climate to Me newsletter so you can stay up to date when we release the dates for the other months. And finally, we are also always open to establishing partnerships with organizations, sponsors, donors, or influencers. And you can find out more about how to do that, how to get involved in other ways at talkclimate2me.ca on the Get Involved page. Amazing. And so we will give you a, a last word to just you know speak to the audience in half a second. But before we get there, I just want to thank you so much again, Rebecca Babcock, for the Talk Climate To Me lead. So great to have you on. Such important work. Uh, wish you luck in 2022. And yeah, take it away. Well, thank you so much for having me. And my final message to your listeners is, above all else, talk climate, take climate action, and maybe see you in the new year. 